Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Now and Men, the podcast about men, masculinities, and gender equality. I'm here again with my co-host, Sandy Ruxton, as usual. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. I hope you've been having some good holiday time, and I hope that's true of all our listeners as well. I have to say, though, the weather here in the UK has been really hot recently. Droughts, fires, dried up rivers and reservoirs. I mean, less extreme than in other parts of the world, but, but also worrying, really, and highly relevant to our previous episode with Professor Bob Pease on masculinity and climate change. But on that cheery note, Stephen, do you want to introduce today's guest? Yes, thanks, Andy. So today we're talking to Sebastian Malano, who works for Oxfam America and is based in Boston in the US. Uh, his current role there is as intersectional feminism manager, but he's held a number of different advisor roles over the last seven years. He's originally from Colombia, but he's also had significant field experience across Latin America and the Caribbean, not just uh, in relation to work on gender, but also other issues such as community development, democracy and electoral matters. And I can confirm from my own experience that Sebastian is particularly passionate about men's involvement in gender equality, as I did some work with him on a report for Oxfam GB a few years ago on this topic. So so welcome to Now and Men, Sebastian. Um, we're really pleased to have you on. Now, Normally, we've started by talking to guests about their work, but on this occasion, we thought we'd begin with a more personal angle, and the personal is political, right? So you're a father to a young child. You've recently written a lovely article, and we'll put it in the show notes for the, for the episode, about your thoughts and experiences in relation to an initiative you lead called Defying Gender Roles. Now, at one point in the article, you say, and I'll quote, "'My road as a dad has been a constant conversation between my father and my son.' What did you mean by that? Because it feels like that has quite a lot of resonance for many men, myself included. So so first of all, thank you, Sandy and Stephen, for having me in this space. I'm delighted to be with you and uh, to be part of these amazing conversations that are being held in this podcast. Um, so when I knew that I was becoming a, 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 a parent four years ago, I was very keen on trying to document this process because when I was trying to understand what it means to be a father with a feminist understanding of how to raise a, a child, I didn't see much out there. And I wanted to start putting some ideas that perhaps would, they would resonate with other men because I wanted to put stuff out there that could that I could read and I could feel like, yes, this is talking to me and my experience and what I'm trying to do. So I did the first attempt at 20 weeks after my, my son was born, then at two years, and then I did this one at, at, last, at four years. Um, and that phrase for me exemplifies that notion of how as, as many identify folks, we're in constant conversation about the impact that male figures have in our lives. Um, it could be because of their overwhelming presence or their absence. And this is something, you know, I, I picked up early on with, with Bell Hooks in The Will to Change, that patriarchy is learned at home. So father figures embody a lot of that. And at the same time, as I'm making sense of this, new understanding of what it means to be a parent and applying that lens with the relationship with my own dad got me into a space where I could see a lot of the flaws, but not a lot of the good things that had happened in my upbringing and then being overcritical about it and then saying, I'm going to be better than my dad. I'm going to be much better. I'm going to be the dad I didn't have in so many ways. And then getting to know this new person and establishing a relationship with my son. And it took me two years, two years to realize that I didn't need it to be the father I, I wanted to have. I needed to be the dad that that kid needs. 
And it's so slow, right? But then once I got to that moment, it was like, okay, so what is the kind of listening I have to do into this? He's small, he's little, but he's still, he already told me, Papa, you're not listening to me. And that's, you know, a, a clear flag of like, you need to change your engagement, even if he's little. So I'm navigating that. How do I become the parent that my kid needs? And at the same time, how do I gain a deeper understanding of my relationship with my father? And I um, value what he has brought into mm -hmm. my life and how as he ages, he is in his late 60s now, how I built a different relationship with him, right? I'm, I'm turning mm -hmm. 40 next month and, and, and having the wisdom of my dad at this point has been tremendously, tremendously important, but also sharing humor and, and being able to ask questions that his experience, I get a lot of benefit from his experience. Mm -hmm. We could probably spend the whole podcast just talking about what you've just said to us, but uh, I mean, there's so many things we want to talk to you about that, that I, um, I thought I'd ask you another thing about the article, which is where you say, you reflect on men's parenting and, and the relationship with patriarchy, and you use a, a very interesting analogy of needing to pull up weeds at the root when you're gardening. And do you want to, do you want to explain that a bit more? Um, and maybe say what you, what are you replacing or trying to replace the roots with? Yeah. Uh, so for many many people before the pandemic, I work on on international development. I travel quite a bit, and since COVID, I'm basically working from home, and my I haven't traveled uh, in the past two and a half years, which which was a hard adjustment. And at the same time, it opened time and opportunity for doing things like gardening, right? Something that I was not familiar at all whatsoever. My partner, she's very keen on that. And then I found a job. I found that I was really good at weeding and taking things out of the garden that shouldn't be there. Um, and, and in these moments where I am outside in Boston, where I live, and it's, you know, it's eight degrees, five degrees outside, and the yard needs to work, I'm trying to pull these, like, roots. And then as I'm going and digging deep, they're going everywhere. And it's so important to start taking them out because if you don't, they start taking the space, nutrients, water. They're taking the, to take the life out of the bulbs you're trying to plant season by season. So in, in one of those fights against the, these roots of this, of this plant, I started thinking about how this was a, a way of understanding what it means to be a man and masculinity in the sense that under the surface of, of, of us as men, there are so many things that have been planted. Some of them we're not aware of because we're socialized in cultures where patriarchy is okay, where sexism is okay, or homophobia is okay, trans exclusion is okay. And then we grow up and then we don't know where we have these things or where they come from. But in our socialization and in issues, in, in changes in life, like becoming a parent, all of these things come out of you. And then you have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out where this is coming from. So for me, this is, I, I feel like masculinity is like cultivating a garden and is a garden in which you have to be very aware of what's under. And when you start finding a root that doesn't belong to the garden you want to grow, you got to start working on it, working on it, working on it. There is a risk. And for those of, of you who have done some gardening that you're so invested into getting the root out and you get so tired of it that sometimes you start pulling and pulling and you start ruining your garden. So sometimes it is about knowing when to stop pulling and say, like, exploring this aspect of my upbringing 
let's say for instance in the way in which I had a relationship with my dad or with my mom or with my parents is such a tender spot that I need to treat it as such because it's going to hurt other spaces of my life or um, what are the kind of indications that are telling you in life that there is something fundamentally wrong in your approach to being a man. Is it about the way you treat each other? Is it about the way in which you are sexist authorities? Is the way the way in which you use your positions to intimidate to achieve outcomes, right? Or using violence as a, as a valid means to sort things in life. And then you start putting things in. So you cultivate some self-reflection, some reflexivity, some emotional literacy, some emotional vulnerability, and then connection. Because you can't do any of this on your own. That's the silliest, most damaging thing that I, I see in, in the way in which relationships and specifically masculinity is being built, that you are you on your own. We can't. We're social beings. Mm. We need to care for each other, care for, care by. Mm. It's great that you put a focus on the process there as well, you know, that uh, this isn't something that you, you just do overnight. You actually return and recultivate and reassess and regrow. You know, um, I think that's a very important part of, of you know, what what we're talking about, really. And, so. and Sandy, and, and that's one of the problems I see today that people are confusing in terms of this analogy of masculinity and gardening, gardening with landscaping. Hmm. You can hire people, come, organize your garden, make it look beautiful. And sometimes in that process, as men, we do that. We put this facade that we're, oh, we're so good, and I stay at home, and I do my chores, and I open space. But it doesn't hold because that kind of effort doesn't hold. It's not organic. It's not real. It doesn't imply the critical work that it needs mm. because we're all raised in these patriarchal societies where sexism is okay. And if we if we don't accept that, we're starting to lose uh, touch with the real world that needs to happen in some ways. It's fascinating as well how like fatherhood, you know, must really challenge. You know, you could be so well versed in feminism and gender equality, but actually being a father must really challenge you in all sorts of you know new and different ways. Um, and I lo I love the gardening metaphor as well because yeah, and just how I suppose different ways in which men approach gardening and what that says about masculinity. There's probably a whole research study there. But um, but anyway, <laughs> um, so you clearly believe in this kind of key feminist tenet about you know the making the personal political and and carry that into your working life as well. And so we know that for the last four or five years, you've been leading what you call a, a men-identified group in Oxfam US, uh, which provides a space for men to talk about their role in gender justice work. Um, so we were just wondering if you could perhaps describe the aims of the group, you know, who's involved in that and how does it work? And perhaps if you could also just explain the choice of the name, as some of our listeners might be wondering about that as well. Yeah, so uh, as, as part of, of Oxfam in the US, we were part of the situations that arose in 2018 with the sexual abuse and power abuses that took place in Haiti. And that created a, a critical space for reflection within a group of folks within the organization that sometimes felt that gender justice and the work on gender wasn't about them. Right? Sometimes we still have these notions that gender justice is about women and girls and we're talking about that we're saying cisgender heterosexual women and girls so as men we're like good job keep doing it i support you that's not on my jd on my work description that's not my job so this opened an opportunity to start saying wait a minute what we're talking about here is 
clear, flagrant power abuses that were done by men, but were supported by a structure and a system that rewards silence, impunity, injustice, injustice and abuse. And that's upheld not only by men, also by women, but also by a system that creates that this is okay. So I posed a question um, in an, we were in a retreat in Lima, Peru, 40 people from Oxfam, US, talking about gender. It was, a, it was a gender justice retreat. And this happened in the context of that. So at that moment, I grouped some of the, the, the people together and said, like, can we start asking about what is the role men need to play in any situation like this? Not to say we're going to come and save the day, we're going to come and take over is what it would take for us to be engaging in this conversation in a meaningful way. So that created a space for us to start having this conversation. And the first step was, can we get all the men in the, in the office together to have a chat? Just a chat, have coffee in the morning, 9 a.m. on a Tuesday. And that's how we started, to get the men together. At our Boston office, there is a huge um, room that is called the fish tank because you can see who's inside. And it was fascinating to see from the inside the looks of people walking by because there were 13, 14 men in a room, which wasn't common to see. And then people around like looking like, am I missing a meeting? What's going on here? And it was that start creating a, a conversation. This also happened in the frame of Me Too, right? So, so culturally we're having these conversations and there is a need to start making sense of them together. So my approach to that was let's bring people together and start having conversations. What does it mean to be a man? Can we explore that question together? And it took more or less a year for the group to start building enough trust to get out from the, from the mind, from the intellectualization, from the conversation about theories and approaches into start centering the conversation about us and our experiences. Again, the garden, right? How do you cultivate trust? How do you build a context for emotional vulnerability? And we did it in two ways in the group. One is we bring topics and we talked about them. So we will look, we will watch a documentary from uh, the public broadcasting station in, in, in the US from NPR talking about patriarchy. What is it? What does it mean? For me too, what is this about? What's going on? And then we'll start mixing that with storytelling. And people, members were asked to approach it however they wanted. Some of them talked about their experiences in life. Some of them talked about their parents. Some of them talk about a specific journey like parenthood. And what that created was a sense that the workplace was becoming a space where you could bring your authentic self in a real way, where you could be present and fully yourself. And at the same time, understanding that as men would benefit greatly for many, many privileges, privileges and unwanted, un unearned benefits that allow us to take that space. Right. So it's a lot of the tensions is how do we maintain a group of men that are genuinely trying to understand better the role they play within an organization that is trying to challenge patriarchy every day. And at the same time, how do you make sure that this is not a space of like the, the all boys club where we make decisions and talk about these things, even if it's the perception. So how do you build mutual and cultivate accountability? We do that through <clears throat> open the space for everybody. It's a space that targets people that identify as men. It has been a progression of the name. And what it means is that I don't have to tell you 
I don't, nobody has to validate you wanting or being in the space. You're welcome. It's up to you. Uh, and, and what that has meant is that we have, have some, some women in our office that say, I want in. And it's like, please join us, come. And that's great because it allows to see that this is a conversation that is taking place um, in a, from, from an intersectional feminist standpoint, which it means that we're not about uh, victimizing men. We're not about saying uh, shame on feminism. We're talking about how feminism offers a clear path for people like us who are generally trying to change power. Um, and the other piece is about transparency. We have an intranet where we post every time that we meet. I post a picture of those who were there because we used to meet in person and it was beautiful. But now with, with, with COVID, we have met over Zoom and now we're at the point in which two and a half years of the four and a half years of the group have been virtually. Uh, and that has been possible because we did a lot of the groundwork at the beginning of being able to build that trust. Um, and at the same time, I post a summary, you know, uh, more about the learnings, less about the details, so people can get a sense of what we're talking about. And through the years, the conversations has shifted, shifted in ways that we talk, for instance, about the reports from Oxfam. So we did a report uh, with Alan Craig on uh, the, the rise of the far right, the masculinities, and Nick Galasso. And then we brought Nick, who is the director of research at Oxfam in the U.S., and he has spent two sessions talking to us about it and what it meant in the context of the Donald Trump presidency, right? So it's it's very tangible. And at the same time, we have spent an enormous amount of time exploring uh, anti-racism, white supremacy, and trans-inclusion, right? It's, it's to say, how do we bring that understanding from the perspective of others, of our work, and our personal experiences? And it has been a, a delightful, right? It has been a, a huge boost for us as people working remotely and at the same time a space that people come to generally participate and understand um there was i don't know if you, you saw it but two or three days ago there was a piece on the guardian about a group of men that have met for the past 36 years mm. it's a beautiful 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 story and it tells about what it means to create these spaces where we can generally shape each other's lives and at the same time how do we combat this traditional notions of what it means to be a man by acting differently. These are subversives act that sustain through time do make a difference. Mm. Mm. No, it's amazing. I, I mean, you did send us a list of like the different topics you've covered. And it's like, I think over 70 or 80 different sessions. It's an amazing range of different issues which you've been discussing. Um, so I suppose, yeah, one thing we're interested in really, I mean, maybe this is an impossible question, but would you say, are there any key lessons for you that you could point to that have arisen from, from this initiative? You know, what advice would you give to somebody who's wanting to run a similar group in their workplace, for example? Um, and have you encountered any kind of challenges as well? Yeah, it's it's a, it's a great question because there is more and more interest in at workplaces to create some cultures where people can fully bring themselves. And in the case of of Oxfam in the US, I had that that double characteristic of being the one who convinced the group, who tries to to hold the space. I don't I don't facilitate. I'm not the lead. No, we all lead and co-create together. But I am the one who brings the group together and try to bring some coherence. But we do this in a collaborative way in terms of topics, sessions, timing, all of that. And at the same time, because of my my work and experience on gender issues, I am able to navigate the conversation within the limits of being coming from an intersectional feminist standpoint. 
So if I start seeing uh, or hearing comments that go against, you know, the dignity of folks who are reinforcing ideas that are homophobic, trans-exclusive, or racist, I'm able to, to cater the conversation in a way, to shepherd the conversation in a way that help us to navigate the tensions rather than to focus on the binaries. So I think that's very important. There are places in, at workplaces, if you want to do that, I think it's important to have support on that, somebody who can understand this, these tensions and be able to shepherd the group in a way that poses questions, hears where people are, but at the same time doesn't become a space where everything goes. No way. You can't, we have enough of that in life already. That space can be for that. And the second is that it's consistency. It's consistency. It's like learning a new language. If you're happy saying the same 25 words of the, the language you're learning every time, that's great. If you gonna, if you wanna gain fluency in your emotional literacy, in cultivating your vulnerability, in becoming a different kind of man and, and exercising what what bell hook call the, the feminist manhood, you gotta do the work. It's it's simple as it is. And consistency. We meet every two weeks. Sometimes I'm there. Sometimes I'm not. And when I am not there, I tell, I reach out to folks and say like, hey, I can be there. Or sometimes I come and say like, you know what? I love you all. I don't have the emotional stamina today to hold space for you. But it doesn't mean the space doesn't take place. And in the past four and a half years, I think I've had 10, 15 conversations with people around the world that want to do this. And there's only one case where this is taking roots in, in the UNDP office in Costa Rica. Uh, otherwise, they start to have one, two sessions and it fades away um, because I do think that there is an intentionality of trying. There is a good intention about trying to bring people to have this conversation, especially men, but the attention to the process is not there. So what it happens is that it falls through because it's about an intellectual conversation. It's not linking your feelings, um, your personal experience, your experiences of oppression and privilege to the reality that we share, which is in this case, the workplace. Um, but I think that there is a lot, a, a lot out there to, to be done on that. You've made me think when you're talking about our, our last episode, which was with a guy called Dan Boyden. He was talking about um, group work with men in prisons. And we were discussing the sort of tension around revealing issues around your personal life, but at the same time being in a, a context where it might not be safe to reveal those kinds of, you know, certain kinds of information. And it occurs to me now that you've been talking that there could be some of that as well in, in a workplace. You know, I mean, would you talk openly? Uh, potentially, if your manager is in the room, you might not want to say, you know, so I'm thinking there might be some interesting sort of tensions and contradictions in there, which you have to navigate. I just wondered if you had any reflections on that. Yes, yes, there are. And, and sometimes the relationships, the work relationships change for team members or for members of the space. So it's funny when you're interacting or it's curious to see how when you're interacting as peers, but then all of a sudden somebody is your manager and you're like, okay, so do I need to change? And in my case, I came, I transitioned from being a staff or union, uh, of, of something in the US is unionized. So I was a staff member, an advisor, and then became a manager. So with being a manager, there are different responsibilities. And I think that the way in which we have navigated this thus far is to be very open about it and say, we're still at the workplace. So there are things, there are limitations to this. Mm. And it's okay to recognize the limitations, not because it doesn't mean we can talk about certain things, but 
opening certain conversations in this space might carry consequences that if we were meeting outside uh, the workplace, they might not, right? We just hold the space for those conversations. So I think that there are limitations and and we've tried to be explicit to, to make the, the implicit explicit to make them visible so we know what are the the, the setup and the boundaries of our conversations uh, and at the same time there are moments in which in spaces like this things emerge and they're hard they're difficult people might be dealing with mental issues health issues with family situations that are beyond the scope of what we can do or that I can do as I hold the space. And when those things have happened, the approach has been bring different people from the group together and say, how do we move about this? We have seen something that needs attention. And then saying, can we can we go to somebody in our people culture and HR and have an informal conversation about something that we're concerned about? And say, yes, we need to, we have to. Uh, and, and being able to to navigate the tension between what does it mean to remain confidential and what does it mean to hear a cry for help and the responsibility that that brings. So it's really hard to navigate. And we've been in those situations two or three times and it's exhausting because emotionally I can feel it, right? The, the what about if, what ifs of this. Not because of the only because of the business side of things, the 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 elements that are brought because of the responsibilities you hold, but also you're talking about human beings, precious mm. human beings and lives. So that that has to be um, taken care of in a very sensitive way, but at the same time, it is necessary to talk about it. So we take care of each other. That's part of taking care of each other as well. Is recognizing that I cannot offer in the space what this person is asking for and bringing that into the space is an indication that something is up and that person is seeing that there is, there is, there is a space that can be um, of help in a situation. Mm. I, I was struck by when we were initiating this conversation, you, you said that the group, leading the group has been transformational for you, but you also made a comment about you know how surprised you were at the the loneliness that some men feel, you know, um, despite perhaps the richness of of their lives and experience. And and how do you make sense of that contradiction? I, I guess it goes back to what you've just said to us about connection, doesn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. I I feel like as as men, we're socializing ways in which we have all the answers. We're okay. Uh, we need to be strong, we need to be stoic, things are under control. Um, expressing feelings means connecting to a feminine side, side that is punished in society. And at the same time, there is this craving, craving to have true connections with folks that share similar experiences to you. So in my case, because I do a lot of the gender work within Oxfam in the US, most of my, of my partners and colleagues are women. Uh, as living, as being, being a migrant, most of my friends live in Colombia or in different places around the world. So I create those conversations, but not the conversations that are about going to a bar and talking about sports, right? I, I don't, I don't crave that. I crave the connection of being able to share where am I, how am I doing, and and be raw about it sometimes, right? And what I've seen in these spaces and in the in the space at uh, at, at our workplace and in other spaces that participants are just so wanting to talk about it. Mm. 
They just want to be heard and share their stories. And sometimes we see that people don't participate, but they're listening and it comes to a time when they do it. I had a, I had a beautiful experience that had shaped this, this group at uh, Oxfam in the U.S., and preparing for this conversation, I, I got to make that connection, which was a, a gift for me. When uh, my, my, my partner was pregnant, there is an organization called Parenting Journey in the US. And they offered these 16 week courses for parents. And they were launching their first only men group. So I joined. And it was fascinating because I was the only men there that still didn't have children but was already thinking about it. So they used to make fun of me and be like, oh, you're coming from the future because you're trying to navigate these things that you don't understand. Um, when I was in the sessions with this group of men, you know, beautiful group of 16 men from all walks of life, I started to understand that many of the men were there not because they chose to be there like I did. They were there because it was a requirement from uh, an authority so they can be part of the children's lives. So it could be gender-based violence, if it could be previous experiences uh, with prison or incarceration. And the way in which these, these men were engaging themselves in the process of unpacking a lot of the toxicity they have living with for the sole purpose of being with their children was extremely powerful to me. And that these were men that perhaps outside that classroom had to play tough because that was the reality. So they're not nice, they're not gonna be nice mm. talking about their feelings and crying or allowing themselves to uh, not to have an answer to a question. But in that space, they brought all of that. And I was like, I, I need to reciprocate to that. So to what extent am I gonna invest myself into this to make an experience meaningful for me and for them? And it was transformative in my life. So I brought a lot of that into this space where we are mostly highly educated, you know, people working for an international nonprofit uh, and say, you know, we experience a lot of privilege and we have a lot of experiences of oppression because of our identities or what, what have you. But the work is the same because we're socializing the same culture, right? But having that experience was very formative to me and being able to say different men have different paths of life that land them in places where it might be more difficult or less difficult to find a path back to humanizing us. Um, but for folks in a space like Oxfam in the US, I think that is is we're enjoying so much privilege that we must do that. And we must do that with honesty. And and I always remember that group as a way of grounding my experience of like honest vulnerability is what makes the difference in a space. I'm going back to what you said was the sort of genesis of, of the group, you know, the the revelation of cases of uh, sexual misconduct, power abuse perpetrated by staff, particularly in, in Haiti, as well, I think, as in other countries. Um, I mean, I worked for Oxfam, you know, in Oxford for, for nine years. So <laughs> I, I feel it quite deeply as well, even though I've not been there for quite a long time. But have there been, alongside the work that you've been doing with the group, have there been other initiatives uh, internally, externally, to try and repair some of that damage and prevent similar occurrences in in future or is there still more to do is there always more to do i don't know i mean i wondered if you'd like to comment on that because certainly for a uk audience they will be thinking about you know oxfam's um decline in status in the uk and how damaging that's been i must i must say sandy that 
in the in the 17 years that I've been doing work on the international development sector and having experienced many many moments of disappointment and and pain that was a, a gut-wrenching moment for me and for many of the people that as I mentioned we were together in Lima making sense of these 40 people making sense of this and I think that has started a process a needed process of clearly making visible what are the power structures and the power systems that are actually defining the way in which we connect the way that we advocate for issues, that we push issues in the world, and that we walk the talk internally. And there is that discrepancy is the work, right? How do we close that gap? We can't go outside in the world and say, talk, talk, to, talk through to power if you're unable to create internally a culture that allows that to happen. So I think that Oxon has been in a journey for the past four or five years to make that explicit. And what that means, it means that the organization changes in terms of people, it changes in terms of values, it changes in terms of processes, and at the same time is willing to do that. So Oxon went through a process of having an independent commission produce a, a report that is publicly available that allows some of those experiences to be visible and then to start naming them. There was a, a beautiful podcast. If you if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it. Done by Gender at Work, and they put an episode a week ago or so about organiza feminist organizations and women's rights organizations having having feminist reckonings because of this same nature of issues around power abuse within organizations. And when that happens within when within an organization that has a human rights, gender justice mandate that is heavily driven by values, then it kills the credibility. That's what it does. And I think that that's what you're, what you're referring to specifically in the, in the case of the UK. And how do you start building a way back into connecting your values with your practices in a way that now organizations can separate the internal from the external? And uh, there are examples of that work that if you go, for instance, to the uh, Oxfam GV website, you're going to see that there is a link there that is talking about our position on trans inclusivity. And that has been the work of love and tears and a lot of push from colleagues that have put themselves personally and professionally at their max to make that clear, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is not only the case of Oxfam, it's the case of many of the INGOs in the world or the NGOs in the world, where we know that there has to be an explicit commitment about certain issues, but then we're not willing to put money behind them. So there is a, a tendency that I've seen in, a, across the, the sector that is dangerous, that is confusing identity with expertise. I'll give you an example. I'm a migrant. Um, so I, I imagine if somebody from my organization comes and says, hey, Sebastian, we're doing some policy on the U.S. border and Mexico. You're a migrant. Why don't you help us? Be like, that's silly that we wouldn't do that. But then it's like, hey, you're queer. We need a policy. Come help us. Why? And I think that we need to call out the sector on that and say, you need to put money behind this because what you need is somebody who has life experience, expertise, and can come and make sense of these things that are so fundamental because we're talking about people's life and experiences here. So I do see change is change that um, signals intention, signals attention, and at the same time, there are realities of 
the funding streams, the structures, COVID is just fundamentally changed the way in which we were working at and the pace that we were working at. So um, there is there is change, but I think that the, the way in which we need to change as organizations needs to be faster because the forces that are pushing for you know, anti-queer agendas, trans-exclusive agendas, homophobic agendas, uh, white supremacist agendas, they're very well organized and structured, very well funded. There was a study on the uh, uh, mm-hmm. about the U- European Union, about the amount of money yeah. they get from evangelical groups in the U.S. and how coordinated and well they work. And it's mm-hmm. mind-blowing that in a sector like ours, we're not able to have a common front in something as basic as, you know, LGBTQI rights issues and people. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Yeah, to go back to um, what we were talking about at the beginning, care is obviously something which is close to your heart, both personally and professionally. And uh, we know you've been advocating with a group for the past four and a half years or so uh, internally for Oxfam to kind of walk the talk on parental leave policies, for example. Um, And in 2020, you co-authored an Oxfam International discussion paper on what a caring future might look like and how might we be able to achieve that, perhaps especially, you know, in light of our experiences of, of the pandemic. Um, so yeah, do you want to say any more about these initiatives? You know, do you think that care is an issue which uh, whose time has come now? You know, why is it that we as men should be taking that a lot more seriously? So so development love love silver bullets, right? Microfinance, women's group, empowerment, leadership, and now it's care. Now it's care, right? The, the COVID reality put that into a, a lived experience of people in many ways. We know by now that the experience has matched the advantages that people alone enjoy alone class racial lines right at the time that we put that document together with with kim piaget with with claire coffee with um with many of my wonderful amazing feminist uh, co-authors in that paper we're trying to imagine something in the midst of it right it's not you're not waiting for the next day to see the light it's in the middle of the night you're trying to see how do we go about this and it's trying to make a strong case about centering our understanding of how do we go about the challenges that we face on on care? Give us tools, a political analysis, and an understanding of the way in which we can promote equality, right? And that this is something that plays out not at homes, not at the workplace, is across the experience of life, right? From gender-based violence and intimate partner violence to the climate crisis that we're facing. So, when you look at care from a, from as an understanding of the world, parental leave policies are a subset of that. Like could be, you know, caring for aging parents or aging relatives. And I'm guilty of this, but many of the things in my life have come out of my experience. So when I was becoming, when I know I was going to have a child, I start thinking more about this and it's like, okay, what does it mean? I want to be with my, my child and my partner. And how do we go about this? My partner had zero zero pay time so how do we navigate this and then i'm sitting in leiden in the netherlands in a meeting about gender with two more men from oxfam uh, in different parts of oxfam and we're talking about this and it happened that the three of us are expecting children so i'm like so happy about like what are you gonna do with your parental leave blah, blah. and one of them says well you know i get 10 days paid and the one said well i get two and i was like what how i get 24 why and then this is the moment of where, like, why are we walking the talk? If we're saying that care is important, how our policies reflect that? And that started a process of another four and a half years 
of asking Oxfam to please, please bring these things together. It, it hurts our external ability to be credible. It hurts our internal uh, connection between our values and, and policies and practices. And it has been a journey to start pushing for that conversation. Um, it has taken it has taken roots, but it is again is you you plant the seeds and then you see in some places things have changed in the U.S. The policy our policy was changed from 25 days fully paid to 12 weeks fully paid. And the the moment that that was announced, I remember vividly because it was a moment in October in 2019, and I was in that meeting and I started crying, and people were like, "Oh, seems like you're very invested in this," and I'm like. You can't imagine what this means because I knew what it meant for me. So I think that there is that there is a lot of work that uh, people like you know Gemma Stringer, Amber Parks, who are leading thinkers on these issues from in, in the UK, especially Amber on 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 care, um, having put a lot of thought and effort and be like, we need to walk the talk because that help us be the organization we're asking the world to be. But it's still an issue. It's still a pressing issue in the US. We had a lot of momentum. At the beginning of the year, there was a hashtag called um, show us your leave, uh, don't buy the scheme. And it created this visible portrait of companies putting out there how they're doing this. And it is it is quite confusing to see for-profit organizations saying, having very progressive parental leave policies and seeing organizations <laughs> in the CSO, NGO sector not being up for that. And that also goes to the funders, right? Those who are funding our work. Some of them have great policies and they enjoy, enjoy great benefits. So why can't we too, right? The danger of this, I think that is that the conversation about parental leave, and this is something that, you know, main care has done a lot of work around, um, is that by making it a perk of a job, you, you end up privatizing a right. And that's very dangerous because parental leave should not be a perk of a job. It's a right, the right to care for uh, right. another human being, the right you have as a parent to enjoy those moments. You know, nobody's indispensable at work. But in those times when you when, when a new life comes into your home, you're indispensable there. And as a man, I don't deal with the physical, hormonal changes that a lot of that bring. Uh, I was very happy to be able to be home because I could support my partner in the way she needed and I could be with my son and build those linkages that I, I still I still think that are fundamental for the relationship I have with him. You've said quite a bit there about progressive change um, in relation to parental leave in the US, but of course you've also referred earlier to um, forces heading in the other direction, you know, which are uh, against women's rights, against gender equality, under severe threat, you know, not not released in relation to abortion rights. And um, we know that you were kind enough to to share a recent article that Stephen and I wrote about the Roe v. Wade uh, case and how much men not only benefit from abortion rights, but, but also need to speak out about them as well. I mean, I wondered if you wanted to say anything about the current debate in the, in the US um, and how different groups of men are responding to that as well. So just to say that I got a lot of love from especially women saying thanks for speaking about this because of that work, which shows that when as men we transgress a little bit the boundaries of what it means to be a man, we get put in pedestals. And that shouldn't be a case. As men, we should be speaking about that. Um, and at the same time, uh, I do think that from what I've seen, 
men still are, are pretty much silent about this. There is not the kind of uproar that I thought we could be seeing and experiencing. And the way in which this conversation is going, it's quite scary. It's quite scary. There is a, um, an academic from the UNC Chapel in the US. Her name is Dr. Ashley Matthias. We've talked to her at Oxfam in the US because she's done a lot of work on the far right and womanhood and motherhood. And this emergent understanding of like being progressive doesn't mean to buy this leaning feminism, blah, blah, blah. It's about being a traditional wife and a traditional mom. She's done amazing work on that. And what we're seeing is that the window of what is what the conversation is about has shifted. Yes, just yesterday in the in the New York Times podcast, there was a conversation about abortion abolitionists. And their theory and their way of approaching this is to say that women have to be charged with homicide when they have an abortion. A year ago, this wasn't mainstream. This wasn't New York Times podcast material. But today it is. And this is what's showing us what this change is opening as a society for conversations. And people say like, oh, this is so terrible. It's like, look at El Salvador. That's the reality of women in El Salvador today. So um, I do think that uh, as men, we're still pretty remote from that conversation. Uh, those of us who have expressed some opinions, who have voiced other ideas like yours, in which we're trying to call out the relationships, sometimes get praised for things that we shouldn't be getting mm -hmm. praised for, which is usually the, the case of men who step outside those, those boundaries. Um, but at the same time, it's a, it's, it's a very dangerous pathway, what I'm seeing here, that this, this is, this is going to require joint effort to start trying to, to counterbalance the way in which the the right is moving in this direction. Yeah, it's really it's really quite concerning, isn't it? Like just from the from the from an outside perspective seeing what's going on in the US, like the direction the Republican Party's moving in in all sorts of directions, not just about abortion but other things as well. It's yeah, I, I can't imagine what it's like to be living there right now. Um but uh, we are running out of time, but we did also want to ask you perhaps something a bit more positive uh, that's happening in the world. Uh you know, with you being from Colombia originally um and with the recent election results there. We wonder what your perspective is on that, really. Um, so, you know, lots of people have talked about how this uh, how this has been described as, you know, the election of uh, Colombia's first kind of left-wing president, Gustavo Petro, um, as well as the first ever black woman being elected vice president, Francia Marquez. So, yeah, what do you think that this kind of trend towards progressive politics might mean for gender equality and masculinity in Colombia. I mean, it does seem to be part of a kind of wider trend that's going on in terms of like ele recent governments being elected in Peru, Chile, Honduras, Mexico, you know, all moving to the left, perhaps. Um, but you've also written um, a great article for Voicemail magazine about how the Colombian conflict, you know, involving the government, paramilitary groups, left wing guerrilla groups, how that's shaped you as a person uh, and as a man as well. Um, so, yeah, what are your thoughts on all of this at the moment and what, what's going on in Colombia right now and what the implications of that might be in terms of masculinity, I guess? The, the election of, of Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez opens a new chapter in the Colombian history. Colombia has been historically one of the most conservative countries in Latin America. So having a peaceful transfer of power to a former guerrilla group member and um, activist, uh, climate change, human rights activist, black woman from the Pacific area, it, it's huge. Symbolically speaking, it's huge and it's given a lot, a lot of hope to many people like me who 
have, might have chosen to live other in other places because it wasn't possible for us to do the work we do in our own country. I do think that policies that a government like this can push are going to be very important, like the creation of the Ministry of Equality that uh, Vice President Marquez will be leading, uh, changes in parental policy, uh, more policies around care. But the reality of things is that culture is policy for lunch, breakfast, and dinner. And the Colombian culture is a culture that is still trying to have a reckoning moment with 60 years of war, of internal conflict. The, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission just released the, the final report after several years of work. And the, the, the right wing within the country is already writing a counter narrative for that. Just to give you a sense of how polarized a country can be. And in, 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 in that culture, violence is still a means a valid mean to do things. So it's reflected in interpartner violence, it's reflected in soccer fields when there are soccer games, it is reflected in Colombia, just to give an example, when Colombia was in the past World Cup, the major have to, uh, during the days that Colombia played, um, people couldn't sell alcohol because people will celebrate and there will be violence. And it's like, you can't even have a celebration without violence. It tells you about a culture that is rooted on violent means as valid means. So we need to start unpacking that. And I think that there is a lot of work happening in terms of arts, culture, music, theater, films, research that is bringing more of that and saying, how do we shift that? Knowing that a, a, a political change can help us with some structural changes in terms of policies, of symbols, right? That create a different narrative. But at the same time, is we're getting, we have to get, start getting the weeds out just to, to go back to that analogy. The Colombian roots and weeds are, are very ingrained and rooted into what it means to be a man. And being a man has to do a lot with being able to use intimidation and violence. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're not a man. But if you're not a man, then who are you? And many of us spend a lot of years trying to figure that out. And many people in Colombia are asking those questions and finding, you know, in, fem in feminist theory, in feminist ideas, a pathway of humanization and redemption. So I think there is a lot of hope. And at the same time, it's politics, you know, so we got to wait till the first big scandal to see how things go. And if there is actually a change that can be sustained and that is as meaningful as, as many of us hope for. So a lot of a lot of uh, pressure and expectation on, the, on that government then. But yeah, let's uh, let's hope for the best. Um, but just quickly, perhaps just to conclude, uh, could you just briefly tell us a little bit about um, your Defying Gender Roles initiative, which we mentioned at the beginning? It seems like quite a, a nice and exciting thing. So yeah, if you could just perhaps tell our audience about what it is and why you set it up, that'd be great. So now I get paid to do this work, but for many years I didn't. And uh, But I'm still very passionate about it. It's what drives me. And when I was uh, exploring and learning about these topics back in 2015, I saw that many of the work that was happening was about sectors and silos, right? Gender-based violence, catcalling, gender pay gap. But we were not talking about connecting the experiences of people across life, right? So define gender roles is a platform that seeks to make visible the way in which harmful, outdated roles shape the people's people's life and their experiences. With a focus on challenging what it means to be a man that is guided by traditional elements of masculinity, be tough, be strong, uh, be promiscuous, all of these things that are not helping us to be the, the people we want to be. 
so it became a way in which I could do three things. One is to start connecting with people and have conversations and create space for critical reflection. I'm not telling people how to live or what to do. I'm trying to create a space for people to think critically about the reality and of their experiences and connecting some of that, you know, Freire, Paulo Freire's uh, way of understanding that in order to change oppression, you need to work with the oppressed. And sometimes the face of the oppressed of the experience changes, but in many cases has, you know, a main appearance or a main way of presenting or being. Uh, the other one is about communicating for social change, which is writing. I make sense of the world by writing. So I just write and I write in English, in Spanish, and I try to put the ideas out there and see which ideas resonate with who and how we can explore different issues from a, a feminist standpoint, but with a focus on masculinity. And the last one is to try to move into action. So it could be a campaign that we did about men up and what men up means having uh, an image if you go to the website you see an image of a guy dressing like rossi the river holding a baby and it's like does it mean what, what does it mean so it's to create conversation about action and and this is the space where i also bring people that are interested in this mentor them and give them a space to to speak their their own truth Oh, fantastic well we'll put the links to that in our show notes um but yeah thank you so much sebastian it, it's brilliant to hear about all of the work you're doing which is really powerful and and great stuff so thank you for giving up your time to speak to us yeah and thanks for me too for for joining us in our our mini fish tank here and uh, <laughs> <laughs> being so eloquent about you know the, the importance of the issues that you're working on so thank you so much Th thank you Bo, and it's very nice uh, seeing you and, and having this conversation with you thank you thank you bye now what interesting work Sebastian's doing, Sandy, in a range of different areas. What did you make of that conversation? Yeah, sure. I thought I thought it was fascinating. Um, you know, I was interested at the start when he was talking about fatherhood in such a sort of nuanced way, you, you know, and, and thinking about the relationships involved with his father, his son, and so on, uh, rather than just the practice every day of being a father. Um, sometimes we, we focus quite a lot on that. And actually you know i think most men listening will, will recognize the whole issue of you know your relationship with your parents and how that influences you as a parent and how you parent your child uh and that's that is a constant dialogue as as he said so i i found that really fascinating how about you yeah, well, I, I loved his analogy about gardening, actually. And I thought it was actually quite interesting that he said that's something he took up during the pandemic, because I think that is something which has happened with quite a lot of people, isn't it? Including quite a few men that they've started getting more in touch with nature, whether that you know is through gardening or spending more time in the local park or forest or whatever uh, during the pandemic and what, what consequences of that are there. And, and actually, even some of the ways we do approach gardening can be quite influenced by some of these ideas about masculinity, you know, that I somehow need to control nature for example um so that's quite interesting yeah what did you make of what he what he talked about in terms of the the men identified group at oxfam and the work that they're doing well i thought that was fascinating as well i mean the way that they've sustained it under his leadership for such a long period and, and tackled so many different issues is quite extraordinary really and you know i had a sense from him that the group had shifted and changed over time and perhaps become more personal in how it had um dealt with issues and that that seemed quite um important i guess it also made me think about the different episodes that we've uh run recently uh several of them um the one with shay on working with older men 
with Dan on working with men in prison and now the one with Sebastian um, working in Oxfam. You know, they're working with men in groups, but in very different ways and uh, in very different contexts, you know, and I can imagine that that really what Dan does um, is so is so different from from what um, Sebastian is doing and, and what would work in, in their respective contexts. So um, I'm kind of fascinated by that, I guess. Yeah, and I think I do think that actually the kind of work that Sebastian's doing, I think, would be beneficial in a lot more workplaces, actually. I mean, you could see how that would work quite easily, perhaps, in a context like Oxfam, where people might be quite on board with a lot of the things that Sebastian was saying already, although still, no doubt, find it challenging. But maybe in other workplaces, there might be a bit more you know, uncertainty about it or even kind of resistance or backlash to it. But I think it's quite clear to me, at least, that, you know, lots and lots of men could benefit from having the kind of conversations with one another that Sebastian was describing and that the workplace actually provides a very good environment for that. And a lot of these issues actually connect directly to our work as well, don't they? Whether that is mental health or fatherhood and caring for children and other family members or indeed violence in the workplace and how can we prevent that? Um, so, yeah, I think Sebastian, the work he's doing, I think we could we could be doing that a lot more widely. But what he said as well was quite important. I think that it actually needs to be done carefully. You know, a lot of thought needs to go into it. And actually, there's a risk sometimes that you start something like that and it just fizzles out. So I do think that the role he's playing, you know, as a it's quite a skilled facilitator, actually, and in, in pushing that group forward is probably quite important as well, mm. really. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think he said that he shepherded the group, didn't he? And I think yeah. I thought that was quite a good good way of describing it really uh, and also yeah. what you're saying there you know it's interesting what the sort of entry point for the work might be you know mm. Um, mm. I can imagine in, in Oxfam you might be able to go straight for a, a group on intersectional feminism and men's relationship with it um, <laughs> but you know in many workplaces uh, talking about fatherhood as a starting point might be much more straightforward or, or men's health so you know that there are many ways of approaching this aren't there and and yeah, I think they work differently in different contexts. Absolutely, yeah. And just lastly, I do think it's important to highlight what was Sebastian was saying about the situation in Colombia. We, we did actually talk to him after we'd stopped recording, didn't we, a, a, a bit more about his experience of growing up in this context of like violence happening all the time and militarization of society and the impact that has on boys and men growing up and the the normalization of all sorts of different forms of violence actually uh, and the kind of harm that does to you you know at a very deep level you know as a child to I mean he talked about the experience of hearing uh, Black Hawk helicopters like outside his house growing up as a child didn't he and the kind of fear that, that engendered in him which still remains today um, did you have any thoughts about that? Um, yes, I mean, uh, you know, it made me think about um, other conflict situations around the world. I mean, obviously, you know, Colombia is, is, has been a pretty extreme example. But if you grew up in the UK, or more specifically, Northern Ireland, you know, you'll have been growing up in a conflict ridden society as well in the, you know, from the 60s onwards. And, you know, transitioning away from that is incredibly difficult when you carry this sort of legacy of violence. But he also he also mentioned actually, and this this would apply to the UK. You know the violence that uh, can be associated with, say, a, a football game. You know, and drinking around football. I think that's something that, that we have in the UK as well. We we know that there are spikes of violence uh, around the times of of football matches, World Cup matches in particular. So there are some of these echoes across the globe. I think which are important. Absolutely, yeah. 
but I'm, I'm definitely going to be following the situation in Colombia with the new government there. Obviously, there's a lot of it's going to be really hard for them to move away and try and change society away from some of the things we've discussed. But uh, there is hope there, um, at least, which is always nice to hold on to. But yeah, perhaps we should uh, bring the episode to a close there. I yep. guess. Um, yep. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. As always, uh, please do share the podcast with your friends, family members, colleagues, if you want to. Uh, subscribe. Um, send us an email at nowamen at gmail.com if you ever have any questions or comments or feedback. But for now, take care and speak to you again soon. Yeah. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye.